As Jed said, we're in Exodus, so if you have your Bible, you might want to get to uh, chapter 20 of Exodus is where we're going to pick it up. How many, uh, by the way, were here last week and heard Neil do the Decalogue? Ten, yeah. He did a great job, but if, for those of you who missed it, let me just give some context so we know where we're kind of going. Um, specifically what he did wasn't teach the nuance of the ten. He talked about the placement of the ten in, in uh, timeline. In other words, he wanted us to understand that God had already called Israel his people. He had already rescued them from slavery. He had already provided for their needs in the wilderness. He had already given them his presence with the cloud and the, the pillar of fire and on the mountain, clearly had all those things before he gives them his commands, which that sequence is essential for all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ because we have to understand that God's grace for his people always comes before God's ways for his people. You don't want to mess that up. Do you understand? Listen, I can do this forever, so you better, you better engage with me. Yeah, you understand? Okay. Um, by the way, that's still how God relates to people. Grace first before instruction. That's the only way God's ever dealt with his people. If you're a Christian, this is your experience. You know this, that he has, he has called you and rescued you out of your sin first. That he has opened your blind eyes and given you a new heart. He's granted faith and he's given grace before he gives you the instructions on what it means and what it looks like to be his people. That's the way God's always done it with, with sinners. Now, um, what we have to understand <clears throat> as we look at God's law is God's law was never intended to save. God's law is in a response to people he's already saved. It is the way he shapes and molds the people into, into his image. God alone saves sinners by grace. That's what we confess all the time. It's exactly what Israel knew. And that lesson that Neil taught last week repeats itself over and over again. You can't avoid it everywhere you go in the scriptures, and it's no different today. We have four chapters in front of us today of covenant law. And I can hear you in your minds, yippee, I can hear. That's exactly how I felt when I studied all of it um, and thought, uh, um. but before we try to glean from that, and I hope we can, uh, let me make certain we're clear on context, okay? So that's why we're back in chapter 20. I want to read the 10 again, the Decalogue again, so that we have in our minds what should be already deeply rooted in our minds as believers, what God really cares about. So back to Exodus 20. Let me, let me do the first 17 verses, and you can follow along. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the, un, in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands or thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, <clears throat> and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor 
your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Perhaps you have seen this many times before, and maybe you've heard people talk about this. In the Ten Commandments, it is split perfectly between vertical and horizontal commands. There is a front section that points directly north to God. This is how I want you to treat me. This is how I want you to think about me. This is how I want you to be my people in regards to me. And then he turns it, splits, and he goes the other way and says, and this is how I want you to treat everybody else. Now, does that ring a bell anywhere? Yeah, it should. It should probably uh, ring a bell. It should sound familiar. It is the synthesis of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave in Matthew 22. We all know this. This is what's etched in our soul. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the Ten Commandments shorthand. That's what it is. If you can really do it, if you can actually give God everything and then turn and point that affections on all people the way you want to be treated, then you sort of got the essence of the Ten Okay, that's the point of it. But when you get to these next four chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, the covenant law, we get really confused then. It's, it's a difficult challenge. Um, let, let me give you some examples of what's in here, and then you'll know why people struggle with this section. <clears throat> what do you do when your ox gets out of control? I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. Or suppose, what do you do about digging pits? When you dig pits, what responsibility do you have about digging pits? I don't know. What, what about when your animal gets into another man's field? What about when you lend your donkey to someone? Now, that happens all the time. Um, I have no idea what to do with that. How often you should plant and when you shouldn't plant. If two men are getting into a fight and there's collateral damage, someone, innocent party, gets wounded, what do you do? What about uh, not eating meat that's been killed by a wild animal? How about cooking procedures, specifically as it relates to don't uh, cook a young goat in its mother's milk? There you go, church. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the covenant law. Now, I want you to know I am cherry-picking, clearly. There is three chapters and 100 verses here that give lots of things, and that's in there. I didn't make that up. That's, that's all a part of the covenant law. And some laws are way more obvious than others. Like some are really, like clearly don't do the things and you would already have a compass about and you go, well, that makes sense. That's just clarity there. But there, this, this stuff that seems out of place for us is there. And so what do you do with it? Now, here's, here's my kind of subjective opinion about what we do with it. Uh, because a lot of it doesn't make sense, because a lot of it doesn't seem to apply to me, and because it's really boring, um, at best you might read it and move on quickly but what most people choose to do is just skip it all together. Covenant doesn't apply to me. You know, someone told me that once and we just jump the chasm and, and we get on with it. Well, here's what I want to do today. I, I want, I got two, I think in my mind, two obligations today. I want to give you a way to understand the covenant law in such a way that you will value it and think it's important. I want to give you a big enough picture so that you can see where it places in your life. And then I want to talk about some problems that kick up in our lives when we uncover the law of God. There's, it's not easy. So we want to deal with both of those. Give you a lens, 
deal with the problems. Make sense? All right, let's deal with the, first of all, the lens of the laws. How do we find the importance in them? I'm gonna try to be brief. I, I simply wanted to give us a way to see that. So all you have to know is that the covenant law that we encounter in these next four chapters are the, the case studies of examples of how to fulfill the 10 for Israel in that day. So it would be like God says, okay, do, don't, do, don't. Here's 10, pithy 17 verses. And then he says, for instance. And he goes on and gives all sorts of circumstances that the people of Israel would find themselves in in that day and age out in the wilderness and talks about that. In other words, how do these vertical commandments and how do the horizontal commandments of the 10 look when they're applied to real life situations? Make sense? I told you, I can go on forever. You, if you... Join me or we're just going to keep repeating ourselves. Okay. The covenant law is the wisdom of God pointed at the very two commandments you already say you know and own. When you say, I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as, as myself, then, then if you're Israel thousands of years ago, you go, oh, oh, this is some of the ways in which I'm supposed to live that out. These are some circumstances we've encountered. These are some problems that we have. This is how God would apply these commands to this situation how we are to love him with everything and love our neighbor as herself. Yeah, there's, let's admit it, there are some strange things in here. I, I understand that. But if you can get back and get the macro view, then you'll understand the big idea of what God's doing and you'll know its place in your life, okay? I really don't personally care what you do with your ox unless your ox ends up messing up my truck. Then I do care, okay? So that would be a practical 2019 application. Um, we are not going to go through all of it. I'm not even going to read all of it. I don't even think it's necessary. You're going to get the point. Um, but I do want to grab a few of them to show you the concepts and precepts of God's law, how it's applied to God's people. Now, I have to say it in that order so we don't mess this up. Again, I'm repeating myself, but it's because I don't want us to miss this. God's law applied to God's people. God's people. And just remember this and make it stick. God's God makes for himself a people by redemption before he makes a people like him by instruction. You get that? Own that. Because I'm not trying to give law to somehow make a ladder for you to climb out of your sinful hole to get to your God. I, that isn't possible. There isn't an obedience ability in anyone. There's no law that you can muster up and, and perfect that gets you towards God's perfection. You can't fix it. But that doesn't make it bad. So that's what I want you to own. Uh, and I think it's essential. If you get that confused, it's blasphemy. I don't want to be too hard on you, but if you somehow think that somehow your problem isn't bad enough that you can't fix it yourself, that's anti-good news. That's anti-Christ the Savior. That's anti-God's gospel. Therefore, it's blasphemy. Not to be too heavy-handed, but I wanted to say that. Okay. Before we read a little bit, let me give you categories. So I just went through this whole four chapters and I wrote down subject matters that the text is dealing with in the specific laws that, that Moses or God is giving Moses to give to the people. This is some of the subjects that come up in this covenant. The treatment of those who work for you. How about the issue of murder? How about the subject of stealing? What about the instruction of violence or threats that you encounter? in your culture. What about responsibility, ownership? What about morality, how to live? What about the heart for the disadvantaged? How about lying, justice, Sabbath rest, worship, 
holy living. Sound relevant? Come on. Sound like it applies? Yeah, so if I just gave you the subject and said, this is our next series. We're going to go through another three months and we're going to talk about these things. You'd all go, amen, go for it. We need that. Well, that's what's in the covenant. All those subjects for those people at that time. Let me look at a few just, just for kicks. Chapter 21, uh, it starts out this way, verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go free. And then he goes on into eight verses to describe little details and nuance of that. But just so you know what he's talking about here, slave is, it, what's in view is an indentured laborer who's entered into a contract for a specific purpose in time, Okay. And it fits more in context with how you would consider your contract employment to someone. There's an obligation that an employer has to you and, and someone over you. And there's some particulars to that, and there are the examples. Um, and hopefully you understand that. Let me, let me just read through, just jump around. I, I don't even have this written down, but let's do this. If you skip over to chapter 21, uh, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies should be put to death. Whoever strikes his father and mother should be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, kidnapping, right? Should be put to death. Whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death. How about verse 26? Or verse 28, I'm sorry. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. He goes on to talk about restitution there. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit and it causes harm to property or someone, he should make restitution. When a man's ox butts another, Again, restitution. When a man steals an ox, restitution. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, 22 verse 5, restitution. If a fire breaks out and consumes another's property, restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money and goods to keep safe and it's stolen, he should be responsible for it. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep to keep it safe and it dies or is injured, he should be responsible and pay restitution. If a man seduces a virgin, chapter 22 verse 16, don't permit a, a, a sorceress to live. <laughs> he goes on and says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress someone poor. He says in 23, you shall not spread a false report. Verse 6, don't pervert justice. Keep the Sabbath the end of, in the middle of 23. And then he says, when we get into chapter 24, when he's talking about Israel hanging around, not hanging around, but in their encounters with foreign people who have foreign false gods, he says something like, and you shall not bow down at all. Stay away from their influences. You shall serve the Lord God your own. And I'm just blasting through, okay, all these particulars in this. But do you get the point? Hopefully you get the point. Some of these are clearly focused vertically, like God first, don't be influenced by false gods, serve me only, and some of them are focused towards others and how you treat others' property and your responsibilities and the way you care for each other, that's clearly the direction. In other words, be fair and just and equitable to everyone. That's God's heart in how we treat others. Perhaps you remember how Jesus talked about the law, um, and like Jesus always does, he takes the subject, clarifies, synthesizes it, and pushes it even farther. Now, this is what he says in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then right after he says that, he goes on to clarify specific um, intentions of the specific law. And it's a section that, that you have clearly aware of. You've heard it said, but I tell you. That's the section that he's in. And you said this. You said, you've heard it said, do not murder. It's one of the ten. But I tell you, if you get angry with your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. One of the ten. But I tell you, if you lust in your heart. You, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. It's in the covenant. That's actually mentioned here. But I'm telling you, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you to love your enemy. <laughs> All Jesus does is take the intention of the law, push it to its ultimate end in when Jesus is leading the hearts of his people and says, that's where we're going. It's not okay to be angry and not kill. It's not okay to lust and not have affairs. It's not okay not to strike and have resentment towards others. It's way more important than that. The law goes far deeper and more specific. God wants your heart. He wants your motives, right? Perhaps then you understand then the macro placement of this covenant law. It's not exhaustive. It was never intended to be exhaustive. It's meant to be the case studies the outworkings of the vertical and horizontal relationships that we find here in the 10. And so hopefully, perhaps you see why it matters. Now, now you know, you can look at the covenant and go, oh, that's not unimportant. That's not confusing to me. That fits perfectly in the way it's describing case studies of, of how we live out this love for God and love for neighbor. So hopefully that gives you the lens to look through. But let me move on to the second part, and it's kind of the one I felt more burdened about when I was studying, and that is, uh, what's the problem? Um, it is the problems that show up with commands. P perhaps you've heard this old uh, Christian line, um, God said it, I believe it, finish it. That settles it. Who are we kidding? If that was true, if all you had to do was hear what God said, we could go home and watch football. We wouldn't have to sit here and work on how this stuff applies and where the Holy Spirit convicts and where we're out of order. Because it isn't just a matter of hearing. If this room simply obeyed what it already knows, our world would be changed. But we don't. And we know. I didn't tell you anything today you didn't know. It's just a challenge. There's a problem. There's a problem in our hearts. So I thought I would do is just kind of wing it here and just throw out what I think are some challenges with the commands of God and, and why it isn't as easy as hearing and doing. I think one of the things is that we underappreciate the commands of God. There's lots of reasons why, but the most obvious is we don't want restrictions. Law, instruction, looks like limitation to freedom. I wanna do what I wanna do. I got a better idea. It's in the way. It slows me down. It's too difficult. Nobody understands. I mean, you put your list together, right? I want to go to heaven, but I don't necessarily want to be changed. That's, you would never say that, but a lot of people live that way. 
Give me my fire insurance, just don't give me a savior. That's a problem. And, and I, I'm not saying you confess it. I'm not certain it's even written down anywhere. I'm just saying when the commandments cramp your style, then I can tell what you want. You want salvation without a, without a Lord. Okay, that's one. Um, there's another potential problem of why we don't appreciate the commands of God. There's theological confusion, potentially. We confuse what the Apostle Paul says. We get most, we get all, let's just give it to him, all of what we understand of our linear theology from the Apostle Paul. If I gave you one book, I'd give you Romans. Say, just own that one, just own that one, and you're not going to mess it up. But in Romans, you can walk away confused about the law if you're not careful. Because you hear things like this, Romans 7, we've died to the law. Romans 7, 6, we've been released from the law. Romans 8, 3, the law is powerless. That Jesus fulfilled the law. That's what you read in Romans. And then we stop and go, I'm done. I don't need it. But we don't read this part where he says, in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So when, when are we okay running from the holy, righteous, and good? Never. And there it says it. The problem with the law isn't the law. It's our sin that prevents us from seeing it as good. Our inability to do it, to obey it, to find joy in it. Sin messes all that up. Yeah, I want to say this and I'll declare it loud. This, the law can't save anybody. The law condemns us all because it exposes us as sinners, incapable, like I can't do it. Every law I've broken, there they are. It exposes us. It reveals our inability. But like David said, and I want to trust this man. He's a man after God's own heart. He has a lot of experience, a lot of proximity. In Psalm 19, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I think somehow there's a potential theological confusion about the law. But I also think there's a potential theological slippage going on in the culture that makes us not appreciate it. In fact, I hear about it. I mean, I'm not really a social media guy, and I don't like going to conferences. I kind of bury my head in the sand. I don't recommend it. I'm just saying it's me. Um, but I hear about churches, mega churches, personality pastors in our country who are teaching that you can basically cut out the second half, the front half of your Bible. You don't need the law, and the tendrils don't apply. They're wrong. I don't need to mention their names. I don't care. When you hear somebody say you don't need this front half, they're wrong. They simply don't understand that God is laying out for the people of Israel the way it is to love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus reemphasized. We need it. So there's slippage going on, just a warning there. But let me give you another problem with, that we discover with the law. We fail to see the nature of God in the instruction. Um, we all can see the regulations. They're easy, right? Do, don't, do, don't. And we go, well, that's hard. That one's hard. That's impossible. I, I mean, we look at them. We can, we can notice those challenges. And that's the easiest part. But we can't see God in them. Let me just suggest to you that when God lays out his instruction, even the covenant law, he's painting a shadowy portrait of himself. What is our God like? He's a God of justice, a God of equity. He's a God who cares about the outsider. He's a God who rescues sinners. He's a God who provides, and he's a holy God, and you better pay attention to this holy God. He just paints a picture of himself, even in every piece of the covenant law, even in how an ox treats another ox. It's, it's interesting, right? The, the law tells us what he's like. 
But I, you know, I'm not so certain we really appreciate what he's like. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just saying based on our culture, we have a tendency to want to fashion God into our own image. I don't want God to be who he is. I want him to be what I want him to be because there's no stretch in there. You've heard this. You've probably heard people say this. My God would never. Well, probably not. It's probably true. Your God, your fashioned one, the one that doesn't make you uncomfortable, the one that fits exactly into what you currently love and, and do, yeah, he probably would never bring you tension. And let me just remind you of something. I think it's worth asking the question or at least making the observation. If your God doesn't create tension in your life and he never makes you uncomfortable, you should be really, really afraid because you're probably believing a lie. There isn't anybody out there who's completely lined up exactly in life and behavior as our God. But what we have a tendency to do, I don't want to work on that. And I don't want to deal with that, and I don't want to change there, and, and I don't want people to think like me here, and so my God would be just like me. If God is just like you, you got a problem. You understand? Okay, what's our problem with the law? We neglect the priorities of God's heart. It's interesting, is I, was, I actually did dig through every one of these covenant pieces and spent a long time on it, but there is a glaring difference right in the middle of them I want to show you. All the covenant laws have a rhythm to them. If you do this, this should happen. If you do this, that should happen. If your property does this, this is how to make it right. And the way it works is that when some failure like that happens, you and I, the, the, the family, the Israel, the church, we deal with it. We, we fix it. We sort it out. Laws affect it. And it seems like every, it's obvious in this section, every one of the instructions are how we deal with each other horizontally. There's one subject matter that God says, I'll deal with it. And it is in chapter 22. And it's how we deal with the sojourner, the outsider, the oppressed. Verse 21, he says, you shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. All I'm trying to say, this whole section, there's probably two more paragraphs here, of every kind of category of people who are disadvantaged. Orphans, widows, poor, sojourner, outsider, people that don't fit at the table, people have nothing to offer, those people, God says, I pay attention to those people. And I care about those people. And what's classic in the American church is to care about some laws, not care about others. I, I don't know. If, if God's rallying himself for one of these, I think it should probably go up in our pecking order of things to care about. And let me just give you a couple reasons I thought about of why this matters a lot to God. And I think this is, this is not gospel, take it or leave it. I, I think what's always true is that people that aren't outsiders have power, possession, and position to solve most of their own problems, right? Some goes bad, some kind of injustice, some kind of loss of property. Buy another one. Sue them. Do something. I, I mean, I can solve my own problems, but people without possession or position or power they can't do anything. I think God knows that. And I think it fits with this other reason, and that is because God's heart is for those who can't look in the mirror. 
the biblical gospel statement about all men in all time who know God, as we stand there before God as people who can't. I can't fix it. I can't be good enough. I can't merit it. I can't anything. God is a God of grace. That's how he functions. He actually mentions the reason why you do it is because I did it for you. Israel. So it matters to him. That's why he cares so deeply about our treatment of those who can't because that is our story. Somebody say amen to that. Okay. A couple more. What's the problem with the law? We fail to see Jesus in the words. Look, look at chapter 23. This is profound, I think. Um, after God gives like all these little details of the instruction, he says this, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not bar- pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. This angel happens to be a theophany, a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Christ. In the text, God says he connects his will to this angel's voice. But your New Testament church, you already know this, right? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word what? These are Christ's words. They're in the very beginning. I, I don't know, this is going to sound corny, but maybe you'll get the point. Um, I go on YouTube and I watch a lot of songs and people playing, bands playing. I saw this reaction video to a Brooks and Dunn tune. I'm not a Brooks and Dunn fan, I don't care. But there was a song called I Believe and there's a line in there that says, I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. Not like it's all true. I'm finding some in the words of red. But there's a, there's a, there's a sense in which there's a gotcha in that. There are people who go, I will read the Bible and I'll really lean in and I'll feel convicted and I'll really try to step it up and obey when I get to the red parts. It's all red parts. The beginning was the word. When God spoke, it was Christ. He formed it all together. There isn't, a red, there isn't anything in here that isn't red letter. It's all from the mouth of Christ. And the reason why the command's gonna be thrown out and go, well, let's get to the New Testament and get to the red parts is because we don't see Christ in the word. And here God puts him right there Right after the instruction said, and if you listen to his voice, my voice, you get my point? This is profound. And I think it would help motivate our understanding of the Old Testament, it does fit. There is the heartbeat of God in it. It's always been the heartbeat of God revealed in the person of Christ. And he spoke it, he lived it, he defends it. Make sense? Okay. Let me give you two more and we're done. I think there's a problem with the law because we don't fully appreciate the nature and effect of sin. So we just kind of blow off. It's interesting. Um, chapter 24. Let's read this. Verses three through seven. This is, this is gonna blow your mind. Moses came and told the people all the words, all the words of the Lord and all their rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Are you circling a couple things there, right? All the words we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in its basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant, which we're talking about here, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Just make a note here, right? We're only eight chapters away from the golden calf. I believe they were sincere as sunshine. I think every one of them sat and heard that and go, absolutely, we're all in. We're all in, we're all in, we're all in. All that you say, we will do, we will be obedient. So what's the problem? What happened? I think they didn't realize how impatient they were until they spent 40 years in the desert wandering. That's what I think. I don't think they understood how fearful they were in their hearts and lack of faith that they would bring to a situation until they ran into an enemy that looked tougher than they were. I don't think they understood that how prone to wander their heart was. I don't think they understood that. I don't think they understood how selfish they were until God made them think about somebody else. No different than us. You fundamentally don't get how broken you are. I think that's the challenge with it. Sounds like somebody I know, right? We have weddings around here from time to time. Weddings are a great illustration, or a bad one if you don't like it, I suppose. You know, you stand in front of an altar, and it all happens. It's, this whole thing's like mysterious, you know? You, you're on your best behavior when you're dating and engaged. You know, you're giving flowers, or you're listening intently, and you're respecting each other. And you walk down an aisle, and you say, uh, death do us part, sickness and health, you know, rich or poor. I'm all in, I'm all in. And then you go on your honeymoon, and the jerk does something you don't like. Right? What happened? What happened? You tell me. Sinner marries a sinner. Right? That's called gasoline and fire. That's how it happens. It, it, it shouldn't be shocking to you. You're just shocked because you didn't understand the nature and the effects of sin. Politics is a great one, right? We're in a most polarized time of our world, and people put all sorts of hope and trust, like Jesus kind of hope and trust, in the next, in the vote, in the election, in the policy or whatever. And then you watch people spin crazy uh, with fear and insecurity based on whatever happens there without remembering that God is the one who establishes kings and nothing gets by his watch. The church should be the most peaceful group of people in the world, and they don't act that way. And you're surprised that sinners in an institution go bad. When you show up at a church, if you come to church, you're new, and you discover that the leaders are no different than you. Wait a minute, I didn't know you'd let me down. I didn't know you wouldn't say what I want you to say. I, I didn't know you wouldn't be there when I wanted you to be there. We're all, we're all chuckleheads. That's the point of this gospel. <laughs> I don't want to be. It's not on my list of things to do, disappoint the church today, but it probably will happen. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to give myself a pass. I'm just saying that when you experience that disappointment, it's because, it's because you don't appreciate the full nature of sin and its effects. And I don't think Israel did either. We're in. All that you say we will do, really? I can just hear God go, <laughs> <laughs> right? One last thing. We, uh, the trouble we have with law is that we carry God's commandments as a stress, not a peace. So, I don't know. Um, we look at these instructions and go, man, that's in the way. I know, I know where I find my happiness and joy, and it's when I can, when I do, when I become. I, I know that. 
And so we think of these laws as restrictions to our dreams, wishes, and, and wants. And we make the false conclusion that our dreams and wishes and wants are for our good, and they're not. The instructions of the Lord are given to you for your peace. The people who rest well at night are the people who obey the instructions of the Lord, the people who live in his instructions because it owns the heart of God. You know this, and you can preach this. How many of you lay awake at night stressed like crazy because you don't obey the commandments of the Lord? I do. Let me just, you don't turn there, just listen to this. I, I teased it up earlier, but listen to the, the cause and the effect of the law through the lens of David. And we'll finish with this. The law of the Lord is perfect, effect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, effect, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. If I simply listed down the effects of the precepts of God, and I had a class, or I had a table out front, said, come here for this. You get a revived soul, wisdom for the simple heart, rejoicing heart, enlightened eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether, and you'll have a treasure sweeter than honey. And I said, come here, this is what you get. We'd all stand there and go, what is it? And then I said, it's God's commands. And he'd go, oh. <laughs> you see the commands as in your way. And they're God's way of peace. That's the point. He knows you. He shaped you. He knows every angle of your life. And he simply puts these things together. If you walk here, if you live here, you will rest. You'll have joy. You won't be overwhelmed you won't have to look in the mirror and feel like you should look away. That's, that's the reality of his commands, for your peace, not for your burden. Does that make sense, church? Hopefully I've given you a way to see the, uh, the covenant in the New Testament, Matthew 22, and we can leave here owning love God, love others, yeah? All right, let's pray together. God, help us. Help us love your law like you want us to. Help us to see it as you mean it this wonderful gift, this treasure of peace for your people. God, we confess we can't, we can't fix our problems. Only you and your grace can solve our problems, but we do want to be like you. So help us, God. Help us to see it and love it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.